0: The following sermon is from Christ Church, Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. So we're in week five of our Hot Topic series, and this morning's topic is God's sovereignty and human free will, or human free choice. So I figured since we have, you know, 35 minutes or so, we can knock this one out. It should be pretty easy. So I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture. Before we do that, I want to just remind everybody that This question and the topics surrounding these questions um, have been debated among Christians, Jews, and philosophers for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So just in case this is new to you, um, there is massive amounts of uh, ideas and debates that have been shared Across the centuries so you are coming into a conversation well in progress but every time i do these hot topic series i end up getting some questions that relate to uh god's sovereignty and it's his sovereignty and salvation and human free will or free choice or agency or responsibility no matter how you kind of caveat that or or kind of position that and so I want to I tackle that. Some of the questions that I got this round pertaining to losing one's salvation. So there's always this big debate about once saved, always saved. Have you guys ever asked that question or had a conversation about, can you lose your salvation or is it eternal? Can you have eternal assurance? Um, and we always get these questions too about like, why did God do things a certain way? Why did God put Adam and Eve in the garden? And if the snake's in the garden and God knew that was gonna happen, and where was God? And why did this happen? If it's part of his plan, and then is he kind of culpable for doing this? And so you read the scriptures and you go, where is God sovereign and where are people responsible? And if that's the case, then how, how do we reconcile this apparent paradox that emerges in our minds over the sovereignty of God and human free will as we experience it? I was having this conversation with my kids. Typically they ask me, hey dad, what's a sermon on? And so we'll talk about it. And yesterday they didn't, so I brought it up. <laughs> so I was asking them about this topic. And, you know, they're they are 13 and about to be 11 and about to be eight. And Julian's staring off in the window, not listening. And so I'm asking them about this topic and they don't care, they're kids. They're like, well, I don't know. So I started asking them, like, think about this for a second. If God, who you learned all his attributes in kids' church, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, self-sufficient, independent, in control of all things, that means He's sovereign. And then we, made in his image, have this ability to think and trust and invest our emotions and make decisions and choose right from wrong. And if the scriptures are full of these imperatives to do this and not do this, and if God says there's gonna be judgment for those things that you did that were wrong and that there's gonna be reward for those things that you did that were right, and there's all these different parts of the scripture, it would, it would seem that if God is really sovereign and everything's going according to his plan, that we're not really culpable or responsible. It doesn't feel that way. But yet if we are, have a human free will and we have responsibility before God and we're gonna get account for the lives that we lived and he's telling us things we ought to do and ought not to do, then it would seem like, well, in some way his sovereignty is impugned because we can choose to do or not do the things that he said. You understand this dilemma? They didn't either. (laughs) The questions kind of get real on a couple different fronts. Sometimes you intellectuals, you're trying to sort it all out because there's an apparent contradiction. Sometimes there's an emotional urge. I've heard people say like, I just can't imagine a world where God doesn't give everyone a fair chance to respond to the good news of of Jesus. How could this component of the scriptures be true? Or it seems like God's heart is this way and how can this happen? And can someone lose their salvation? And usually you're not talking about yourself, you're talking about your neighbor who says he's a Christian, but you've seen his recycling bin. You're like, I don't know. It's always up in the air. Where does this kind of tension exist? So what I wanna do is I wanna read to you the passage of scripture that kind of pulls all these elements together. And there's a lot of them. I kind of chose this one on purpose, but I'll read to you Ephesians chapter one, verses three to 14. And as we read it, as you listen to it, I want you to look for the language surrounding a sovereign God's commitment to his own purpose and will and his power in carrying out that will. I want you to listen to appeals or commands to obedience, a purpose of holiness, blamelessness, and faith on the part of humans. I want you to listen for The result of these things working in concert being the glory of God and the blessing of all people. And I want you especially to notice the place in which these things come together is in Christ. So listen as I read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that it just, Paul starts with worship. He said, let's just bless God because listen to what he's done. He has blessed us. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will of his glory now that is a dense and saturated passage of scripture is it not we could we could kind of mill down on any one of those parenthetical phrases and spend weeks considering its meaning and the implication of its meaning and then appropriate responses or application of its meaning but instead of doing that what i'd like to do is zoom out for a little bit and look at all these constituent parts that are worked together folded together and paint a picture for our description of reality and our invitation into what god is doing and what i'd like to do is to show you that what seems to be apparently a contradiction or a conundrum or a paradox is in fact indeed compatible now this may be super boring to you like oh great Now I got a fake interest for 30 more minutes, you know? But consider for a moment that all of us have a concept about this, whether it's theological or not, right? So if I go back to being middle school Jesse, I'm not thinking about Ephesians chapter one. I'm thinking about choose your own adventure novels. Anybody here 25 to 45 and had a public library card in the 90s? This is one of my favorite books when I was growing up. This whole series of novels called Choose Your Own Adventure. And what the books were was you'd read the first chapter and about halfway through the second chapter, you'd come to kind of a fork in the road in the narrative and you would choose whether to climb this mountain or to go into this cave. And then it would say, if you choose the cave, then go to this page. And if you choose to climb up the cliff face, then go to this page. And you would read the story and some of those decisions would bring you to an abrupt end. And so like any frustrated reader in middle school, I'd back up to my wrong decision and I would go up the cliff face instead of in the cave and I would chase this down. And I got to the point where I started reading these novels, but I had to know every single possible outcome at every single juncture. And so you'd read it one way and then you'd back up and you'd read it another way and then you'd back up and then you'd read it another way. And there'd be multiple ways in which this would go. Now this appeals to our sense of reality. Why? Because it tells us that our choices matter and dictate the outcome of our reality. Isn't that our experience? Now, this is the reason and the kind of concept behind all time travel movies, by the way. So how many of you guys are Terminator fans? Back to the Future? I've noticed that there's like this whole sci-fi genre of time travel, and then there's, a, there's like a rom-com version too for the ladies. I don't know. The, the only thing they have in common is that for whatever reason, your clothes can't go back in time with you, and so everybody shows up naked. I don't know why you have to see everybody's butts in time travel movies. I don't get it. I guess if you're not a DeLorean, it's nudity. I don't know. But here we are. But what all these things have in common is they have a, a person that's able to go backward in time, and then that changes something, and then when they return to where they're from, everything's different. Right? Because our choices impact the outcome. And yet Ephesians chapter one and the whole storyline of the Bible says conversely that God's bringing about an outcome that he planned in prehistory and he's gonna bring it about purposefully and through human agency and with specificity and nothing can thwart him. In in church world, you know that the typical couching of this debate is between Calvinism and Arminianism and pertains to the nature of, of salvation and the role of faith and grace within salvation. Have you got? you guys know this? Six, six of you know this. All right. This is good. Are you participating with me? So whether or not you came from a Calvinist church, just to be like a reformed church, Presbyterian church, many of them, or a, a Wesleyan, Armenian, Methodist church, there's different constructs that seek to uh, close this gap in this tension, that seeks to satisfy this paradox with a theological construct. That's what Calvinism is, and that's what Armenianism is. There's an apparent contradiction, and so to close that apparent contradiction, I'm gonna come up with a structure that's going to explain salvation with Bible verses in a way that either defends the sovereignty of God in salvation, Because human free will has a way of offending God's sovereignty, because if we're in control, then who's sovereign here, right? And likewise, if you end up with a dogmatic commitment to the sovereignty of God, what ends up happening is you really kind of turn everything into a fatalist, determinist perspective where God's going to do what God's going to do, and it almost doesn't matter what happens to you because you're just along for the ride. And so in order to defend free will, there's this other structure that, and so they were fighting about this in the 1600s. You guys thought, hey, I came to second service. No, 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 you're late. You're late for this discussion. This is 400 years old. And so this has been going on. And even before that, Pelagius and Augustine and Cassian tried to get in there and sort it out in the fourth century. So people have been having these conversations forever. Now, I could take you through all of these points and counterpoints and help you understand that, but you don't want a boring history lesson. And those of you who do, you've already done the work and you probably already have a conclusion. But here's what I wanna do. I want to affirm from scripture some true things that all of us should see clearly and agree on. And then I wanna help you know what to do with the paradox, the conundrum, the tension between uh, these two seemingly incompatible things. Let's start with this. Um, God is in fact... Completely sovereign. You guys know this, right? Like he existed before all this was here. He designed it. He built it. He rules over it. He reigns over it. He is eternal, independent, omnipotent, omniscient. He is everywhere, equally present. He does what he wants and he can do anything and no one can stop him. Do you guys know this? And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're not praying to a God that's like, well, I don't know. I'm going to have to ask Charles, you know? Aren't you glad God's not like middle management God? Like, well... Let me see how the people feel about this, you know? No. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Here's God speaking through the prophet Isaiah 46 and 9 to 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. Does God sound fairly confident in his ability and his power? Psalm 135, verse six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So it is not unclear from scripture. This is just a very small sampling that we have a sovereign God and he is sovereign in all that he does. That is not untrue. And there's nothing you can do to make God less sovereign in order to preserve your sense of free will. The paradox exists. Why? Well, the scripture, number one, is filled with moral imperatives. From the very beginning, God says, do this and don't do that. This is good, that is bad. Trust me and obey. Don't distrust and disobey. And there will be consequences for the things that you choose to do that are wrong. Do you understand this? And so God is both giving directions and imperatives, showing that you have the opportunity to believe and trust, to obey or disobey. And this is the setup. And if you disobey, there will be consequences. And in fact, final judgment. In fact, Jesus didn't soften this in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter five and verse 48 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Kind of a high standard there, Jesus. And even when Jesus came to preach the gospel to be received by faith, what did he say? It's a command, repent and believe. So Jesus is interacting with human choice. Everything he says is predicated upon your ability to listen, perceive, decide, and then believe. You see this? So these two things are stated very plainly and very clearly. Now, that creates a paradox of its own, but it actually gets even worse. Because not only is there a paradox between what God's nature as sovereign and God's imperatives and us as human moral agents who are culpable and responsible, but God actually describes himself as bringing about purposes that he has ordained and committed himself to that stand in opposition to his own expressed desire. You understand this? So God is bringing about a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. And he's calling all people to repent and believe. And yet all throughout church history and all throughout the scriptures, there's always been people who reject God, disbelieve, disobey, turn away from God and face judgment, both immediate and final. And so there's this classification of people who've rejected God. And yet we read in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, and these are some of the pillars of Arminianism. God, our savior, who desires all people, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the heart of God, the desire of God, the will of God. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. What? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel eighteen twenty three. God says to the prophet, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Is this a delight to me, declares the Lord God, and, re- and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And so God is expressing his desire for everyone to heed his call for repentance and turn to him, and yet he seems to not be forcing everyone to do that. And so you start to ask the question like, well, is God of two wills or two minds? And so theologians have been having this debate and discussion uh, forever. And the thing is about the scriptures is that they never seek to reconcile this tension ever. Instead, they present a storyline that has all of these components right next to each other. Consider for a moment Acts chapter two, verses 22, 23. This is Peter preaching the day of Pentecost. He's preaching to these Jews. They know this backstory. They are... Physically and really the same Jews who were shouting, crucify him at the end of the gospels, okay? This is who he's preaching to. Now listen, here's what he says. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, listen, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so Peter says, you are guilty. But it was God's plan. You did it. But it was part of what he was doing. You did it and you did it with Roman collusion. And you're guilty for it. Now, how does the plan of God, eternal purpose of God in the gospel of Jesus and the culpability of those Jews whom Peter is charging with wrongdoing and of the Romans who actually brought about this execution, how do all these things fold together? They just, they're in the story like they just exist. And the question is, what do we do with that with our little pea brains? And what I want to give to you is this word. You ready? Compatibilism. Isn't that a fun word? And its nemesis is incompatibilism. Now, here's the problem. Our minds want to say these two things are incompatible. And so we go searching for a solution. And the solutions come to us in various forms and surrounding different doctrines. If you're a philosopher, you will get to choose between determinism and indeterminism. Do you ever just wonder if if everything had a root cause and everything just started and it's just cause and effect, if all this is just going to work itself out over time and we're just kind of along for the ride and we have very little or no control over the outcomes of anything at all? In fact, there's a lot of philosophical and scientific minds that will tell you this is the case where essentially one big domino rally, and guess what? Your little life is just a domino. Bink. You got no choice except for the parents that fell on you and the kids you crush. (laughs) Enjoy your therapy, you know? This is the idea that people have in their minds. And so what happens is uh, Calvinism seeks to come up with a, a structure that defends the sovereignty of God and explains but doesn't preserve human free will. And so you end up with a very diminished understanding of free will. Arminianism seems to defend the concept and experience of free will, but it ends up couching some of the sovereignty of God in ways that diminish God. Here's the problem with both of these two frameworks is that both of them obscure God slightly and you end up with a smaller God. And both of them are seeking to make compatible two things that in my opinion from the scriptures are never sought to be reconciled one to another. So here's the thing. Compatibilism is just a disposition of heart that says, you know what? Uh, two things can be true in apparent contradiction. I don't have to understand them for them both to be true. Now, you're used to this because, uh, well, I don't, shouldn't say this because I don't know this for sure, but I'm kind of doubtful. I don't know any flat earthers. That's what I'm saying. I know people who know flat earthers. I've never had this conversation. And we're not talking about this today because you didn't send in a question. <laughs> but we know the earth is round even though it looks flat. And the reason that people thought it was flat for centuries is because it looks flat, right? But now you've been in an airplane, you've seen satellite images, you know what the globe looks like. You've seen with your own eyes, many of you, the the bend of the horizon because of the height in which you you understand something that's counterintuitive, that we are on an earth that looks flat, but the fact is it's a sphere. Same thing can be true for the sun. I mean, for centuries, people assumed that the sun was revolving around the earth. Why? Because it looks like that. (laughs) We say the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Nope, sure doesn't. It's just sitting there and we're spinning around it at millions of miles an hour. That's what's really going on. But it doesn't look like that, does it? It's counterintuitive, but it's true. The same is true for the passage of time. Some of you are like, I know, sermons feel like longer, like time slows down. (laughs) No, I'm talking about time is actually relative. We think we're experiencing it at the same rate, but time doesn't go by at the same rate. Time is relative based on motion and mass. This is why you can put an atomic clock in New York and... Put the same synchronized atomic clock on a jet and have it fly around the earth. And when it gets back, the two clocks will not match. Why? Because time is relative. Now we exist inside of a part of a window of time that we can't perceive that it's relative, but you can't do quantum mechanics without understanding the relative nature of time. So just because something doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you have a tiny brain. Do you understand? It's very humbling, isn't it? So the reality is, is that we've got to come to the scriptures with a sense of compatibilism, where we're able to hang on to the truth the scripture tells us about the sovereignty of God in this hand, while at the same time hanging on to the moral imperatives and the calls to believe and repent, and the calls to obey God and work with the Holy Spirit to fulfill His purpose and mission in our lives in this hand, and not try to resolve an apparent tension, because you'll never be able to. Does that make sense? Isn't that so unsatisfying? <laughs> Aren't you like, wait, I, I waited for this? That's the answer. Now, there are those who have sought to bridge the gap between Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, uh, Louis de Molina sought to do this. Have you guys ever heard of Molinism? Hasn't really taken off. But uh, Molina postulated that you, God has this middle knowledge that like we would think of it as God is like a supercomputer. We can process every human interaction, every human choice, every thought, and every potential outcome. So like a massive choose your own adventure book, okay, with an incalculable number of choices. And God can somehow hang on to all that and see every possible outcome. And so he's able to locate every outcome of everything throughout all of time. And he in, enter. Intervenes in there to kind of move things in a way that works inside of human choices, but in no way offends them. And so there's one scripture that he kind of uses to put this out there, and a lot of proof texting happens like that with just this one scripture. But it's kind of interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you Matthew 11:20. This is Jesus talking, and he's proclaiming woes over cities who have rejected him, which is kind of fun. And here's what it says: Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. They didn't repent. They saw Jesus, they saw the signs, but they were like, eh, take it or leave it, we'll leave it. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now that's really punchy. But notice that Jesus knows what would be different if a different scenario had, had, had played out. And so... Molina said, this is how God works. He sees all the things that could happen and he brings about the things that do happen, but in no way to offend uh, human moral agency. Oh, that's interesting. This kind of pushes the problem off into the future for me. So here's my question for you. Uh, and this is, this is a little specific to this particular service because I didn't talk about this in the first service, but the, the spirit of God is stirring me a little bit right here. So I want to draw your attention to a question. And the question is, what is human freedom really? What is it you see we're living in this age where we're very far removed from the calvinist calvinism of our forefathers and we're even kind of pulled away from the denomination denominationalism that arminianism was saturated in and we're living in a kind of a de-churched era and most of our concepts of the sovereignty of god are detached but most of our concepts of human free will have taken on the culture's definition and in no way god's definition So there's this weird libertarian idea, this concept of human freedom, and it's like cancer. It will destroy your life. And here's what it is. The idea is that a person's will is so free that nothing decisively influences them to make a choice one way or the other between several options. You can literally do whatever you want. And anyone else who says differently or tries to make you do differently is your enemy. This is this libertarian idea that the reason for a choice lies solely in that person on the inside of you. This is a hugely, highly exalted sense of self. And this is actually the free will that a lot of people, especially my age and younger, are pushing in the church today, and it's making for a very small God. So I'd like to just call that out as baloney. And I'd like to do that with cash. Who likes cash? (laughs) I have a $20 bill and a $5 bill and a $1 bill, And that's an expensive illustration. I'm going to keep that one. If I let any of you come up here and choose which one of of these bills you can take, which one are you going to take? Are you? It's second service, so I feel like I can come down from the stage. Let's see. And I'm going to reward people who are sitting on the front row. That's what I'm going to do. You can have any one of these bills. See, now let's talk about why you did that. Why would you take the one when everybody knows you would take the 20? So someone else can have the 20. So you're being generous. Are you motivated at all by the fact that the goal of this illustration is to dangle a $20 bill in front of you just before Thanksgiving when the price of cranberry sauce has soared? Yeah? You see, there's been so many factors, actually, you can have all of them. The, there's so many factors that go into our decisions. It's silly, it's silly, silly, silly to think that you have some power in and of yourself to make all the choices completely dis- in disregard to everything that's happening around you. In fact, your will is so limited that most of the decisions you make, you make without even thinking about because you are being controlled by your circumstances and by your settings. And if this wasn't the case, the criminal justice system would make no sense at all. What are we trying to do when we punish crime is by acknowledging the motives for the person who committed that crime you understand? Nothing is arbitrary, but the reality is, is that our wills are so strongly uh, under what, what the Bible actually would talk about as captivity. And in fact, freedom is not you being able to do whatever you want in any situation. That's not freedom at all. And in fact, that idea of freedom actually leads you to bondage. Because if you could do whatever you want, you will only do things that are bad for you and then you won't be able to stop. Did you know that? And that's for all of us. The reality is, is that the biblical vision of freedom is that you are most free when you become who you were made to be. And do you know who defines that? God does. So our freedom is found when we actually do trust Jesus. Our freedom is found when we do acknowledge the God who made us. Our true freedom is found when we receive the strength to overcome the impulses that constrain us. The things that we think give us freedom and that give us choice and give us power are actually mirages that keep us in bondage. And this is the clear teaching of scripture throughout. Now the problem is, is it's not satisfying. And so churches tend to organize themselves around theological constructs that make them feel better in their minds, something they get their mind around. And I grew up in one of those environments and you probably did too. Maybe you grew up in a Wesleyan environment where the idea was that you have to preserve free will. And so God's grace becomes previent and, and there's something God does for a minute and you have a chance and everybody gets a chance. And so all this activity, but what happens is this antinomianism comes in. We don't, we, we, this is where people end up getting saved seven times a year and getting rebaptized over and over and over again. And you end up hearing sermons about backsliding and coming back and doing the same old things. And you end up in these patterns of sin that you can't break out of. And everybody's wondering if they're going to heaven and they feel good on, on Sunday afternoon, but by Wednesday, I'm going to hell for sure. And no one's got eternal security Do you understand where all this is going? Because it's all on you and you're not good at this. Do you understand? But you could also go into like a reform background, a Presbyterian background where Calvinism is the, is the word of the day. What happens there is that God's power ends up being a thing that totally pushes off all human activity. And so your prayers become, thank you God for this day. Do what you're going to do anyway. Amen. And there's no impulse for mission. There's no impulse for sacrifice because God's going to do what God's going to do. And even even the things that are wrong on the inside of us, we say, oh, my sins are, my best days, my my righteous acts are like filthy rags and I'm just bad all the time and all I expect is failure over failure, but I'm confident that I'm going to heaven. Why? Because one saved, always saved. And then you go, this does not look like a life that's lived after Jesus at all. Do you understand the, the, the problems with both of these constructs? And the reality is, is we're trying to reconcile friends. And so these things are compatible. They are not incompatible. And so we honor and serve a awesome, powerful, and sovereign God. But we are also made in his image and will give an account for what we do. And God is calling us to exercise our faith in a relationship. And this is where I wanna take us to end. Back to Ephesians chapter one. Did you notice all the places where human dependence, human obedience, human transformation connect with the plan of God, the purpose of God, the sovereignty of God. There is a place all those things come together and there is a result when they do. And the place is in Christ. When you begin to read the scripture with Jesus at the center and your union with him, your mystical, relational, faith-based union with him as the center point of your theology and not a defense of the sovereignty of God and not a defense of human free will, you come to Christ, you will find the purposes of God in eternity and the God you can trust in that will transform your life. You will find yourself experiencing the nearness of God and knowing that you are You're gonna be saved because you are his, because you know him, because you walk with him, because you are in him. Do you understand this? And the result of this relationship and the transformation that ensues is the glory of God. Because the more you know him and see him, the more majestic he is to you and the more your life shines light on his nature and his character. And so if you've got some little construct that makes your brain feel better, you should let it go so that you can walk in a relationship that makes your life point to Jesus. Now, I don't know which direction you're coming from. I don't know what it looks like for you. I sure hope I haven't answered any of your questions. Maybe you have a hundred more. But what I wanna leave you with is an invitation. It's an invitation. Choose your own adventure. But will your adventure lead you to the glory of God? Or will it lead you to always wondering if you're doing enough? Will it lead you to a version of God that creates categories of people that have no hope and have no chance? Or will it motivate you to give your lives away for others? Hmm. God, I just pray for each of us. Lord, we, we desperately want answers to tough questions. There's so much we don't know, and there's so much we fear. And yeah, there's nothing to be feared. There's no fear in love. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in the person of your son, Jesus. God, we see your eternal nature. We see your selfless love. We see your justice and your mercy. We see your righteousness and your compassion. And Lord, I just pray for every person in my hearing, no matter the nature of our questions. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to carry and to grow in an understanding of who you are that is bigger than our minds can hold on to. God, and I pray that you would build a relationship with us that is predicated on trust and love acceptance forgiveness adoption and transformation I just pray Lord our, our questions would get quieter as our Jesus gets bigger and Lord we thank you that you are the only one that can do this Lord we thank you for your word so many so many so many passages that we could read and contemplate but all of them hold up for us the power of Jesus to save, to sanctify, to redeem, and to restore, to be the substance of our hope and our faith. And so as we fix our attention on him, God, I pray that that you would help us with our little pea brains as we navigate all of these things. We love you.